welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveler. My name is Divya Sani, Global Editorial Director of Condé Nast Traveler, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey. And at Condé Nast Traveler, we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favorite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners, or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Trish Lorenz. Welcome to Condé Nast Traveler's Escape Routes. I will be reading my piece on Portugal's Azores Islands, which featured in the March 2020 issue of Condé Nast Traveler. I hope you enjoy it. My feet are clinging to a tiny ledge. I grip a precariously small outcrop with my left hand while flailing about for a more substantial grip with my right. After a four-hour climb through an extraterrestrial environment of lava formations surrounded by pale purple heather and delicate ferns, I'm 7,500 feet up Mount Pico. I can see the peak, one rocky chasm ahead. As I clamber towards it, the stones under my hands get hotter and steam whistles from a crack near my head. I feel as if I'm climbing some vast prehistoric beast. After crossing the huge grey boulders of its vertebrae and the smooth muscles of rippled magma, I've reached its heaving crown. I've been visiting the Azores for the past six years, drawn back again and again by the epic landscapes and vivid blue sea, grateful that this striking green part of the planet has not yet been conquered by humanity. But, like most visitors, I've only infrequently ventured beyond São Miguel, the largest island, with the capital city Ponta Delgada and an almost park-like landscape of hydrangea-covered hills and crater lakes. Further out in the Atlantic, there are wilder islands, each as different as planets in a solar system, from the lava-covered moonscape of Pico to the avatar-like Florge, where waterfalls plunge hundreds of feet over green cliffs. All of the Azores' nine islands were birthed from volcanoes, tiny atolls of black lava emerging from the depths of the Atlantic. No people or animals other than birds lived on the archipelago until Portuguese explorers discovered it in the early 15th century and populated it with minor gentry, indentured servants, slaves and prisoners, given the choice between jail or exile. Today, the islanders who live in Europe's westernmost point have an inner calm born from facing down the elements. Pico is a 45-minute flight from Ponta Delgada. From the air, the island looks like part of a treasure map, a circular islet in an indigo sea with the mountain drawn in just off centre. I meet my guide, Daniel Penner, just before sunrise, the mountain tinged red in the pale light of dawn. Calm and quietly encouraging, Penner hikes the steep slopes as smoothly as if they were a suburban sidewalk while I clamber ungainly beside him. It turns out trekking isn't his only talent. I play the saxophone, he says. I've just founded the island's first jazz band. A lot of people here are musical. 
I think after Cuba, Cape Verde and Ireland, we're the world's fourth most musical place. The good thing about living in a place where not much happens is you have all the time in the world to do whatever you want. By the time you reach the first plateau, the mountain is casting a triangular shadow across the land below. Soft white clouds float under us over green vineyards crisscrossed with black stone walls and the dark craters of the island's more than 200 volcanoes. The view from the summit is even more spectacular, a satellite map of the two other islands that make up this corner of the Azores. Fayal, where transatlantic yacht crews gather for a final touch of land, and Saint-Georges, a slender shape tinged with surf. Along with its volcanoes, Pico is known for its wine. Its 550-year-old vineyards are a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Fortunato Garcia, an art teacher who moonlights as a winemaker, invites me for a drink at his adega, a rustic stone storehouse at the edge of the family vineyard. The back wall is lined with barrels of aging wine, but the centerpiece is a 13-foot-long table flanked with mismatched chairs. These adegas, along with the tiny churches with brightly painted interiors that you find in each village, are the meeting point and social glue that hold Pico's small community together. Everyone on the island owns a vineyard, says Fortunato. It's tradition that people come and help with the harvest and then come to the adega and help with the drinking too. Not that long ago, people even used to give kids a few drops of wine in their milk. Fortunato makes his Sarlebel wine using the island's traditional grapes picked very late. It's among the strongest wine anywhere in the world. One vintage reached more than 20% alcohol by volume. It's smooth, more dry than sweet. After two glasses, I feel a river of warmth running through me. The ache in my legs from climbing the mountain has disappeared and a wide smile creases my face. The next morning, surprisingly headache-free, I board an early ferry for the 45-minute journey to the neighbouring island of saint George. The sky is silvery blue and birds start low across our wake, swooping for fish. Luis Betancourt meets me on shore, emanating a natty outdoor vibe in a fluorescent orange t-shirt with matching socks and beanie. Now in his 40s, he was a small child in 1980 when an earthquake shook the island's foundations. I remember clinging to my mother's legs while the earth moved, he says. Afterwards, many families emigrated, but the Betancourt family stayed and Luis discovered that he thrived on adrenaline. He built his first grappling kit when he was 12 years old and went on to found an adventure sports company. To the general incomprehension of his friends and family, for whom living on an active volcano in the middle of the Atlantic was presumably adventure enough. Today, Luis wants to lead me to a hidden surf spot, accessible only by hiking time-worn paths down forest-covered cliffs. There's an island word, bruma, which means the mist and fog that comes from being inside a low cloud. As we start our hike, the bruma descends. Enveloped in damp, softly drifting haze, we walk through the rainforest, accompanied by calls of unseen birds and the distant burble of waterfalls. It's humid and warm. Ferns and moss cover the worn stone steps that line the winding path. Yam leaves, bigger than serving plates, brush our legs. We can smell wild mint beneath our feet. Far off mountaintops slide in and out of view. It seems not inconceivable that we might spot a brontosaurus munching a fern. After an hour of walking downhill, we emerge onto a low plateau above a small village of stone houses and a whitewashed church that sit beside a lagoon on a narrow isthmus. This is Fajar Santo Cristo. Largely abandoned after the earthquake, 
it has only recently been rediscovered by surfers. There are virtually no people here, no electricity, no internet, no roads, no cars, and no easy way in or out. The waves are just a few feet high today, but even at this size, they are powerful enough to ride. Three surfers pad past us, their boards forming long fins behind them. Rodrigo Heredia, whose tousled hair suggests a life spent immersed in salt water, is a former Portuguese surfing champion. He's traveled all over the world, but Fajar Santo Cristo remains a favorite spot. This island is a mystery in the middle of the Atlantic, he says. It's like Indonesia was 30 years ago. There's a long point break, perfect waves, and the water is 75 degrees, so you can surf in shorts. Often, you're the only one in the water, and as you surf, you can see the cliffs and the mountains, the church and the lagoon. Sitting in the lee of the mountains, listening to the waves rolling onto the stony beach, I survey the derelict houses around me, some of which are losing their fight with the plants reclaiming the land. I'm struck by the fleeting nature of human endeavor. The idea brings surprising tranquility, the certainty that all things will pass, and I delay our departure as long as I can to keep hold of the moment. After Saint-Georges, I make my way west to Florges, perhaps the most beautiful of the nine islands and definitely the wildest. From its high cliffs, green meets blue wherever I look, sea and sky bordering mountains, tall waterfalls dropping into streams below, alpine forests abutting crater lakes shrouded in cloud. The ink-coloured ocean curves 270 degrees around me as if I'm on the prow of a boat. A towering cumulus sits like a top hat above the tiny neighboring island of Corvon, beloved by bird watchers. Waves attach the jagged columns of black basalt that thrust from the ocean below, crashing in silvery eddies around their base. The wind is constant. Even on a mild day, the air has an impatient quality. The impression of smallness I had at Fajar Santa Cristo returns, paired with a feeling of vulnerability. Just 4,000 people live on Florge, and young Francisco Pimentel knows them all. As he drives, he lifts an index finger in a lazy salute at every car we pass. Fajazinha, his hometown, is a village of 61 people on a steep hillside facing the sea. The wooden floor of the village church is made of boards salvaged centuries ago from ships wrecked on the cliffs below. The cottages have tiled images of religious icons beside the front doors. Our Lady of Hope. Our Lady of Miracles. Francisco shows me his great-grandmother's house, white with a red door and a small window that looks out at the sea. For Azorians, the ocean is much more than just a view. Marizia, says Francisco, using a Portuguese word that translates as salt spray, but which is used to mean the scent of the sea. An Azorian needs Marizia. We have to see the sea. We have to hear the waves. I need to know the sea is always there. Even if I'm not looking at it, I want to know it's over my shoulder somewhere. If I can't see the sea every day, I feel like I'm in jail. That night, I sleep with the windows open, listening to the ocean and the wind, rest the streams of waterfalls and impenetrable forests chasing me through the night. On the day I'm due to travel to Corvu, the inter-island ferry is cancelled, so I ride the 15 miles or so in a small inflatable craft. A marlin, longer than the boat, flicks past a dark shadow in the indigo water, and a pod of dolphins carve elegant arcs in the water beside us. Kovu's tiny, just a volcano and hardy cows grazing the windswept pastures on its flanks. There's only one village with winding narrow streets designed to help defend against pirates, a bird watching centre, a 
and a small museum dedicated to the history of the island. The museum is locked and Senor Felipe, who holds the key, is busy butchering a pig. Calls are made and eventually Senor Felipe appears, eyes bright, with thinning hair worn brushed over nut brown pate and two top front teeth that are shorter than the rest, lending his smile a triangular tilt. He points out a spinning wheel that belonged to his grandmother and gives me two balls of oily wool, one dyed the traditional royal blue of the island's cloth as a keepsake. I see a black and white picture of a toddler in a bullock-drawn cart and guess that it was taken around the turn of last century. No, says Senior Felipe, it was the early 1970s. I know because that's me in the cart. On the Azores, time moves slowly. I don't feel quite ready to return to the buzz of San Miguel, but lunch with a friend at the recently opened Otaka in Ponta Delgada reminds me of the pleasures of urban life. Local chef José Pereira combines Azorian ingredients with Japanese techniques. Wild line-caught bluefin tuna sashimi and creamy local limpets served with yuzu zoi. Later that afternoon, craving that hazy solitude I felt on the outer islands, I head to Furnish, a small town a 45-minute drive northeast. It sits in the crater of an active volcano that spits and steams and emits a scent of sulphur. Locals cook food in the crater and bathe in its medicinal thermal pools. Before dusk, I walk barefoot down to one of the pools. Steam hovers above it like a delicate cloud. I float on my back, watching the sky turn from pale blue to deep red. Surrounded by mountains and enveloped in warm, soothing water, I am as weightless and still as a baby in the womb. We hope you enjoyed our Escapes Truth podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us on the charts and ensure that you're the first to hear about our new episodes.